You know, it's something I was just reading uh night before last, the election night, I decided to read Dostoevsky. You remember notes from the underground, 1864, spiteful man, sickly man, and so on. And then at the very end, man, the cat, I can even read it to you, man. This is how the cat goes off. This is how he ends the whole thing, you know. He says, uh, he says, inertia on nature. Men, but no, people on earth are alone. That's the calamity of it. Is anyone really alive? Shouts the old Russian hero. No one responds. I'm no epic hero, but I too shout. And no one responds. They say the sun animates the universe. The sun will rise and look at it. Is it not a corpse? Everything is dead. And corpses are everywhere. Only people exist and around them is silence. That is what the earth is. People love one another. Who said that? Whose behest is that? The pendulum ticks on, insensible, horrible. It's two o'clock in the morning. Her shoes are standing by her little bed as if they expected her. No, seriously, when they take her away tomorrow, what on earth am I going to do? That's how he ends it, man. My body right on the bed. He ends it with the question, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? It's Lennon's question, Cherninesky's question, man. What am I going to do? But then this, the, the depth of the uh, loneliness, the emptiness, that polar night of darkness and harshness that Max Weber talks about in the vocation lecture, the politics of vocation, the iron cage, everybody feeling caught. I mean, that's, that's a modern condition. That's a human condition, especially modern in terms of it's uh, the new kinds of institutions in place. That's Belsky, 1876, man. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I scrapped my plans and interviewed Cornell West about what's going on right now and where things might be heading. And I have another similar interview lined up with Mike Davis that I'm conducting tomorrow, and that'll be out soon. I did not have time to write up much of an intro, so I'll just ask that if you have been meaning to support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig, please do so. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Cornell West, a professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard University, who truly needs no further introduction. Cornell West, welcome to the dig. Oh, my brother, salute you, the work you're doing, Brother Daniel. It's been, what, seven years ago we were together in Philadelphia, Brother Christopher Phillips of the Socrates and Democracy Cafe, and we get a chance to get together again. What a moment. It is a different moment, and uh, no longer in the same city. Moving between cities has become a little bit difficult in the interim. Well, I hope your loved ones are safe and well and strong, though, man. You as well. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. You recently said, quote, with the neo-fascist gangster in the White House, we have to be part of an anti-fascist coalition. 
this is a, a tough week. What do we do with this coalition being led by a Democratic establishment that has proven itself utterly incapable of decisively defeating this ever more radically right-wing Republican Party? Is this a sign of liberal weakness, the bankruptcy of neoliberalism, conservative strength, or or all of the above, or something else entirely? Well, one is that, you see, the rot at the core of the systems embraces the neo-fascist wing of the ruling class, which is Trump and company, and the neoliberal wing of the ruling class, which is Biden and Harris. Uh, the reason some of us argue against Trump in in the form of a vote for a milquetoast, mediocre, centrist Biden who's head of a rotten Democratic establishment is because we're trying to stop the American march toward fascism. So that was part of the anti-fascist coalition. Because fascism, as you know, it calls into question the very possibility of any kind of radical democratic politics across the board. So there is still a difference between a neo-fascist catastrophe and a neoliberal disaster. Now, it looks as if we'll be wrestling with a neoliberal disaster. That's another way of saying that uh, the rot is, 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 is there. It's just that with Biden, the rot proceeds or moves much more slowly vis-a-vis Trump, but much more fast vis-a-vis what we want. And so we still have to have mass mobilization. We still have to have serious social movement, motion and momentum, streets, jails, pressures on Democrats in the House, certain kinds of alliances with the the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. But I think we can conclude that the Democratic Party is simply unable to serve as an institutional vehicle for serious struggles for truth and justice. That, that's what we're, that's the conclusion right now. I think we have to draw That's why I'm spending a lot of time with brother Nick Brown and, and sister Nina Turner and others uh, with Marianne Williamson and the others with the uh, people's party. But I think the crucial point here though, is that we've got to be able to have a politics of solidarity. What I mean by that is that all the talk about identity, racial identity, gender identity, sexual orientation identity, they are crucial, they are indispensable, but in the end, they must be connected to a moral integrity and deep political solidarity that hones in on a financialized form of predatory capitalism that is killing the planet, poor people, working people here and abroad. And so the neoliberal versions of identity politics are exactly what Brother Adolph Reed has taught us for the last 30 years. It's a form of class politics. And if we don't understand that, we fall right in the trap of what we underwent with Obama. And we can't fall in that trap again. What do you make of this dynamic in this country where we have extremely, more more brazenly than ever, perhaps not ever, but for a long time, racist Republicans who, who either deny that racism exists or even worse, assert that the true racism is against white people. And then we have Democrats peddling this form of identity politics that you're talking about, which is all about recognition 
and representation, all while pushing economic security, foreign policies that are fundamentally racist. What is it about this dynamic? Well, I mean, one is that, you see, the uh, distinctive features of the rot in the American system, denial, evasion, avoidance, a preoccupation with narrow conceptions of identity, status, and no serious questioning of, again, the financialized form of predatory capitalism. Capitalism has been predatory from the very beginning. But right now, it's a bank Senate. It's Wall Street Senate. And without a focus on that particular force that is behind so much of the frustration, desperation, wage stagnation, spiritual crisis of depression, escalating suicides, self-violation, self-flagellation, people blaming themselves on their inability to live lives that flourish owing to the ways in which the structures and institutions of our present moment of predatory capitalism impose such tremendous burden, spiritual burden, economic burden, political burden. It's a very difficult time to be alive. It's an exciting time to be alive, but it's a very difficult time to be alive. There's no doubt about it. What do you make of Trump winning a larger share of Black and particularly Latino votes. Trump and the Republican coalition are obviously extraordinarily racist, but does this election force us to rethink how racism functions as a dynamic, evolving force in American politics? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Of uh, wonderful question. Keep in mind, when I was in Charlottesville, the neo-fascist gangsters spitting at us and cussing us out. I saw a black brother marching with them, just like David Duke was Catholic. The Klan began again, anti-black, anti-Jewish, anti-Catholic. See, so this this kind of upward mobility American style within the American right, you want to get more folks who themselves were targeted. Black folk, Jews, Catholics, they're human beings. They decide to be neo-fascist. They decide to be right-wing. Because human beings make choices far beyond skin pigmentation. Like Clarence Thomas, I mean, he's a beautiful black man aesthetically. He chooses to side with the powerful. He chooses to side with the wealthy. He chooses to promote, to, to, to justify and rationalize policies that crush the weak and the vulnerable. See, so these, so we shouldn't be surprised in that way that there's always been a slice uh, of conservatives and reactionaries in the black community, in the brown community women and so forth and so on, you know. I mean, what part of the sickness when it comes to white supremacy at the election is one would have thought that the number of white brothers and sisters would have gone down in voting for Trump after four years of seeing his gangsterism manifest on so many different levels. You would say, okay, in the pack of feminist movement, this sets we know our white sisters are not going to vote for Trump this time. It's higher. And the white brothers, it's majority. It's a little lower, but it's majority. You say, oh, my God. Now, part of it is, is that every person who voted for Trump is not a racist. We have to understand that. He's got a significant following among the races. But everyone who voted for him uh, uh, doesn't make racism their major motivation. They're looking for an alternative to a rotten neoliberal 
status quo. And when Bernie was crushed by the neoliberals, that's who we were crushed by, and Bernie presented an alternative to a rotten neoliberal status quo, and they're looking for somewhere else. So when Bernie collapses, or when Bernie's pushed out, then they swing back to Trump. And it's rooted in this very deep contempt that so many fellow citizens have for neoliberal elites, not just politicians, the neoliberal elites in corporate media, the neoliberal elites in universities, the neoliberal elites in churches and synagogues and mosques. There's a tremendous contempt for neoliberal elites because they have been so hypocritical and self-righteous and arrogant. And uh, uh, unfortunately, we on the left, you know, we've tried with, with every fiber of our being to provide some alternative to the rot in the neoliberal uh, rule, but we could not pull it off within the context of electoral politics. On the streets, the largest manifestation of protest in the history of the empire. What impact does that have on the neoliberal rulers in the uh, Democratic Party, the establishment Democratic Party? Just small little symbolic decorative uh, changes, put on Lakunte cloth and bring in some more black people and brown people in the name of diversity and inclusion and equity. No serious impact. And of course, now we're being charged as being somehow the culprits. You know, Rahm Emanuel was saying, this is the year of the Biden Republican. Oh, please. That's like looking for the number of black people in the National Hockey League. You get one seat. They spent $1 billion for one seat. And we were saying, no, you're going to have to try to bring in some of the more progressive folk behind Bernie, for the most part, held at arm's length. And they were still dubbed as socialists, even when they didn't do that, even when they marginalized the folk. So it's just very clear that the corporate wing, the establishment of the Democratic Party, they have very, very little interest in, 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 in speaking to the needs of poor people and working people. Very little interest. I want to ask you about the role of the Black Lives Matter mobilization in this election, because Trump 2020 was really about law and order and against Black Lives Matter in, in the same way that Trump 2016 was about building the wall and against Mexicans, Central Americans, Muslim immigrants, different themes, same same logic. And so that appears to have worked for Trump and Republicans more than most people thought it was based on the polling prior to the election. But on the other hand, I saw some data today that Democratic voter registration had been weighed down throughout the early pandemic. And then after George Floyd's murder and the mass protests have followed, that Democratic registration exploded. So like, what does this all reveal? Ooh, What's I your- didn't know that. They know that that's that's fascinating. I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that the American style fascism, the rule of big money, and the rule of big military, waving the flag to ensure the imperial and the class hierarchies in place, will always have a white supremacist public face, as well as a male supremacist public face. Now it's going to be homophobic and transphobic too, but given the history of the nation and given the role of white supremacy in shaping the nation, that white supremacy is going to be the major public face. Immigrants, it'll be against black folk, especially the enslaved, the Jim Crow and Jane Crow of the past. 
and uh, and you can see how Trump's dominant tendencies feed directly into this analysis. Now, on the other hand, when there is a countervailing force like Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, it would be the best of the trade union movement. It could be the best of the feminist movement. It could be the best of the anti-homophobic, anti-transphobic movement. And that's who we're out in the streets. But Black Lives Matter was a united front. It was an act of magnificent solidarity of people from all walks of life concerned about the public lynching of Brother, Brother George Perry Floyd Jr. So that you get this hunger and thirst for alternatives to the status quo. And when the left cannot present a credible vision or a believable program, some will swing to the other alternative to the neoliberal status quo, which is a neo-fascist one that poses as populist, but it also doesn't pose as contemptuous with neoliberals. It speaks it every day. You see, Trump's program was based very much on the xenophobia, the support of the military, the embrace of Wall Street, but also the contempt of the neoliberals. Media, especially, but not only the media, the university and so forth and so And I tell people all the time, you know, I say, well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a neoliberal. I'm very critical of neoliberals. You see, so when Trump is critical of the neoliberals, I don't want him to lie. I believe in truth. But I understand uh, people's concerns about neoliberal arrogance and neoliberal condescension and neoliberal haughtiness that hides and conceals their own structures of domination, their own operations of power. And that's where the left has to intervene in the name of truth and justice. And you live in Cambridge, so you're familiar with those signs that read, in this house we believe, on houses that probably cost a half million at least in neighborhoods, maybe not in Cambridge, but in many neighborhoods that exclude affordable housing where children go to segregated, mostly white schools. That's true. Well, you know, some people in Cambridge say it's the Socialist Republic of Cambridge because it is so progressive, but you've got neoliberal elements and you've got more more left-wing elements in Cambridge contesting. And of course, in the universities where Usually there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, radical gestures being made, but it is a neoliberal university. There's no doubt about that in terms of corporatization, its commodification and so on, and the discourse that takes place within it. And we've got some wonderful people. I've had magnificent, I have magnificent colleagues uh, at Harvard on the one hand, but they would be the first to say that the, uh, the presence of the left at Harvard is not a strong the presence of progressive liberals, major. The presence of right-wing conservatives, not too, you know, not not too strong. And that's how so many of the uh, Ivy League schools operate these days. You made that comment about the role of empire and and neoliberal globalizers in shaping American politics, and and I'm thinking a sort of an on-the-fly hypothesis that Trumpist nationalism and civilizationalism is so complex because it's what's most fundamentally racist about Trumpist politics, but it's also, in its civilizational and nationalist guide, maybe what makes Trumpism more multiracial or open to being involving more people than 
than we had previously imagined. Yeah, but I think it differs, you know, from group to group. When you got this massive toxic masculinity that just cuts across different different communities, different skin pigmentation, different colors and classes, and that kind of patriarchal posing and posturing uh, cuts uh, has very deep roots in American culture. You know, John Wayne didn't just have white fans. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's one way of putting it right there. You see what I mean? Or some of these big uh, wrestlers, you know, they, they, you got folk posing and posturing as this big toxic masculine so-and-so. And the young boys of all different colors and neighborhoods and communities get socialized into that. You see? So that that patriarchal uh, uh, dimension cannot be downplayed. Uh, and I, w- I, w- I would argue when it comes to the plight of precious uh, trans folk and gay and brothers and lesbian sisters, that the homophobia cannot be downplayed. It cuts very deep, even though there's been some wonderful breakthroughs. It still cuts very deep, and that's part of the backlash, too. And there's deep you know, homophobia and transphobia in each one of our communities. It's in our churches, it's in our mosques, it's in our synagogues, it's in this public spaces and, 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 and civic zones of the empire. But in the end, you know, and if we're not talking about predatory capitalism, brother, we are missing out on what sits at the center of it very much. So I was having a wonderful dialogue with uh, my dear brother Tone uh, last night of uh, Ados concerned about reparations, Sister Yvette concerned about reparations, and I very much support reparations I've had for 40 years. But even if black people were able to get the kind of reparations that the movement is calling for, Predatory capitalism is still in place. So it's still an unjust system. It's still deeply unfair. And the asymmetric relations of power at the workplace would still be in place. If you don't have workers lifting their voices and shaping their voices, kind of thing Rick Wolf has been talking about. I just did a thing with him last week as well with Chris Hedges in terms of democracy at work, kind of thing that, that the he and, and Maria and others are, are, have been pushing. Uh, on, in a number of different ways. That is also indispensable if we're talking about unleashing possibilities for those sly stone called everyday people. Man. And that's that's what it's all about. Now, I tell you, the grim questions, the skeletons that sit in our closet are, do we as a species even have the capacity to avoid self-destruction, given the levels of greed, especially at the top, and the contempt for working people and peoples of color? Does America as an empire, even have the wherewithal culturally, politically, to undergo the kind of fundamental transformation before it self-destructs. And then, of course, given the history of, of, of white supremacy, do we really have a majority of fellow white citizens who have the capacity, the cultivated capacity, to really affirm the dignity and decency of black people? Those are all three questions that sit in the closet, man. And if we don't answer, if we don't have an affirmative answer to those, that's it, man. Well, what what are some possible answers to those? Like, where do we look for hope? Because I'm particularly thinking about my younger comrades out here, like a whole generation of people who were radicalized by Bernie of young people and got so hopeful so fast about making big changes that at their two four seemed totally impossible, but are now confronted with this deeply bleak picture? Do we assemble hope by pointing to things like 
Arizona turning left, young people in general turning left, or is hope something more ephemeral that we that we have to cultivate for the long haul, a, a sort of faith, secular or or otherwise? Mm. Well, one is, I mean, I go back to my own tradition, black folk. Our anthem is lift every voice. And you have to lift every voice in the face of all the hatred come at you. In addition, I the love warriors from Coltrane to Martin King to Fannie Lou Hamer and Stevie Wonder. All the trauma coming at you. Got to dish out the wounded healers. All the terror coming at you. Got to dish out the freedom fighters from Harriet Tubman to Malcolm X, from Frederick Douglass to Ella Baker. So that all we can do as human beings, oh brother, is not just be echoes that's cowardly and conformist. We got to be voices of courage and vision. And in the end, with the need for our identities grounded in integrity and solidarity, we have each other. I got Daniel. Daniel got me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you got your identities. I've got my identities. We can come together in terms of our visions of a new world, our analysis of predatory capitalism and our critiques of white supremacy and male supremacy and the way in which empire connects with that predatory that predatory capitalism, keeping track of the humanity of trans and others, and then in the end, act courageously and say, we are going to be in solidarity. And that's all we've ever had in human history. I mean, thank God Mike Davis and the others, the, the, uh, those who provide us with tremendous insights, visions, data, arguments, stories, and narratives of the past when they raised their voices. Now, most of the folk who raised their voices in the past it paid a major cost. But that's why we need each other. Brother Daniel, Brother West, oh, we willing to pay the cost. Oh, we willing to hold on. Are oh, we willing to be constant and consistent all the way through? Very important. You know what I mean? You keep circling back to that politics of solidarity. Absolutely. So in that sense, there's never a guarantee that what we're trying to do is something we can pull off. But there is a real possibility if we can fortify ourselves and we fortify in order to fructify. When you fructify, it means by your deeds, you shall know them by your by the fruits of who they are. You shall know them and the fruits, not for not foliage and the deeds, just not words. You got to say what you mean, mean what you say. Attempt to sustain the tradition. Now, we'll always have disagreements and strategic uh, battles and tactical battles. But if our vision and our analysis is in place, then we know we're headed toward the empowerment of those friends for known called the wretched of the earth or from my own biblical tradition, the least of these. And I'm building on the genius of Hebrew scripture, not all the genocide and the patriarchy and so forth. But that genius that says that hesed, that steadfast love is going to focus on the orphan and the widow and the fatherless, the motherless, the poor, the persecuted, the subjugated, the exploited, the oppressed. This is one of the great gifts of Jewish brothers and sisters to the world. And it applies to them like anybody else. Because it's a high standard. It's a high moral spiritual standard that's bigger than all of us. But it is a gift we build on and say, yes, that is worth our energy, our vitality, what, how we look at the world, how we feel, how we act. That's what it is to be a revolutionary or a radical or somebody 
who wants to be decent enough to fundamentally transform the structures of domination of all sorts that are coming at us. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond, and you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is We Still Hear, Pandemic, Policing, Protest, and Possibility by Mark Lamont Hill, edited by Frank Barrett, with a foreword by Kianga Yamada-Taylor. The uprising of 2020 marked a new phase in the unfolding movement for Black lives. The brutal killings of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor, and countless other injustices large and small, were the match that lit the spark of the largest protest movement in U.S. history, a historic uprising against racism and the politics of disposability that the COVID-19 pandemic lays bare. In this urgent and incisive collection of new interviews bookended by two new essays, Mark Lamont Hill critically examines the pre-existing conditions that have led to this moment of crisis and upheaval, guiding us through both the perils and possibilities, and helping us imagine an abolitionist future. As Eddie S. Glaude Jr. said, quote, Mark Lamont Hill doesn't shy away from the difficult questions, and he is willing to tell the hard truth. In this powerful book, his insight and commitment to justice leap from every page. Read it, be informed, and feel fortified in these trying times. Hill models what Henry James called perception at the pitch of passion. We Still Here, Pandemic Policing, Protest and Possibility by Mark Lamont Hill. Out now from Haymarket Books. I feel like what's most shocking to people about this week is that this could happen after Trump presided over the worst year in many Americans' living memory. How can it be that this pandemic solidified support for Trump among so many to the extent that he could actually expand his base? Not enough to win, it seems, but expand it. Is it that Trump's handling of the coronavirus perversely normalized the pandemic and and so made what should have been this false choice between getting the pandemic under control and boosting the economy, that it turned that for many people into a zero-sum choice between lockdown and reopening? Or is it the, the deep racial and class disparities and how the pandemic's health and economic crises have been experienced? What, How has COVID shaped this week? You know, there's just so many factors that go into this. Um, because, you know, the same kind of denial about predatory capitalism, the denial of America as an empire and 800 military units around the world, the denial of the centrality of white supremacy and the shaping of how America developed, all those forms of denial just get extended to the denial of the vicious impact of the pandemic. It's, it's a Disneyland sensibility. It's a Peter Pan orientation, you see, that... Uh, you know, you can be 55 years old and try to convince yourself you're Peter Pan because you never want to grow up. It's just a certain kind of psychic immaturity and spiritual uh, refusal to, um, to to mature. And then politically, you always fall back on your political options. You only got two, neoliberalism, 
dead as a doornail, neo-fascism. It's so exciting. The rallies, it's opposition. It's subversive to the liberals. The liberals hate us. That makes me feel so good. Oh, CNN and MSNBC really hate us so. Oh, I feel so good because I know how limited they are. And you see, in the end, those two become parasitic on each other. The neoliberal become parasitic on the neo-fascist. And we can't even get a left-wing alternative. And yet, you know, it's still something we have to oppose on the ground practically and even, you know, have these uh, these brief alliances with neoliberal uh, centrists in order to push back the fascists. But we have to be very honest and candid about the degree to which neoliberals are still very much at the top are still very much part of a ruling class that's crushing uh, poor people, that's crushing working people with its greed, its indifference, its callousness towards social misery. And to think in denial that somehow those chickens won't come home to roost, to think that somehow you're not going to reap what you sow, given that kind of greed and indifference and, and, and contempt, really, for so many poor and working people. But then there's the cultural issues, you know, of abortion and same-sex marriage and so forth. And so on. There's, there's so many different variables here. We don't have an overarching uh, analysis of this. I know Simon, uh, what, what is his name? Oh, yeah, Simon Reed Henry. I just read his book on Empire of Democracy. You know, he takes a stab at it, the reshaping of the West after the Cold War. And uh, and he does it, you know, he does a decent job, but we need to keep track much more closely of the role of financial elites and predatory capitalist uh, practices than he does. But he does a decent job. Uh, but we need more thinking about this to help us to see more clearly. Remember that wonderful moment in Max Weber's vocation, science as a vocation. He says what one of the roles of the thinkers and intellectuals is provide intellectual clarity and intellectual clarity. How do we see what's going on behind the surfaces and the appearances, you see? How do you keep track of the various cliques and formations within the ruling class? Because we're at a moment now where the ruling class is at each other's throat. The neoliberal wing of the ruling class is at the throat of the neo-fascist wing of the ruling class. But large numbers of Americans choose to do what? Have nothing to do with it. I mean, how many millions refuse to vote? That's another kind of option, too. It's not just three options, neoliberal, neo-fascist, and then some kind of left, serious left, radical, democratic, democratic socialist project. But large numbers of our fellow citizens said, forget it. You know, the whole thing's professional wrestling. It's already set up. I'm just going about my business. And what does that do? Reinforce the structures of domination. Reinforce the status quo in the form of a symbolic rejection. You're touching on exactly what I was talking to Wendy Brown a few, about. A few. Oh, yeah. When she's got best book out on neoliberalism, we have. We were talking just about that and about how neoliberalism, and also I think this is not so much what her book is about, but I think also Empire has just really remade human subjectivities. And so this ism that we don't talk about enough when discussing the roots of Trumpism is nihilism. We're talking about just fundamental ways of being in and relating to the world that have been profoundly deformed. But then the flip side of that is this newly resurgent left, which emerged, I think, in large part from the contradictions between Obama's promise and the dismal reality of his governance. What do you make of this, you know, this longstanding bipartisan consensus around the American idea 
fracturing into so many pieces, both this nihilism on the right, this resurgent socialism on the left, and that somehow Biden, this human embodiment of a senescent liberal establishment politics, has emerged as the president to preside over what comes next. But I mean, I'm glad you raised that issue of nihilism, though. You know, I've been wrestling with this throughout my own uh, my own work, uh, the nihilism in black American race matters. And then, of course, democracy matters, where I argued almost 20 years ago, all the varieties of nihilism that are operating, given the three fundamental tendencies of militarism, of authoritarianism and of free market fundamentalism. So in 2004, I'm already arguing these are the dominant forces that are pushing. And you see, the nihilism is not just on the right. It's it's among the neoliberals as well. And uh, And it's among the ordinary liberal voters who say, I agree with all of Bernie's policies, but it's just not possible. Well, I wouldn't call that a nihilism, though. I would call that more of a pessimism. Yeah, that's more of a pessimism or a, a a misplaced kind of realism, which takes the form of a, a narrow kind of opportunism. Uh, people these days call it pragmatism. They ain't got nothing <laughs> to do with John Dewey, nothing to do with William James, nothing to do with Charles Sanders' purse. Pragmatism was always visionary. It comes out of Emerson. Emerson is visionary. But practicalism or opportunism or careerism is market-driven. So anytime you see the journalists, mainstream journalists talking about let's be pragmatic, they just tell them let's be opportunistic. And usually it just allows them to pursue their careers and remain well adjusted to a status quo that they refuse to bring into serious critique. Uh, uh, But it's true that the nihilism at the deeper level, because see nihilism at the deeper level simply says that in the end, might really does make right. That in the end, any talk about integrity, honesty, decency, morality, or spiritual uh, visions that authorize alternatives to the present are childish. Now, that's where your analysis and, and, and what I'm talking about really feed in together in a beautiful way, you see, because what, what they're saying is any of us who provide some alternative are naive, need to grow up, utopian, you know, as if you know, the slave on the plantation who has a dream of overthrowing slavery is a, somehow needs to grow up. No, 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 no. He's got a very serious dream that's rooted in his material condition. He just doesn't have the collective wherewithal right now to act on it. And that's how human history proceeds forward and backwards. What kinds of dreams? What kinds of alternatives? Fascism is an alternative because it's fascist zones in the history of the United States with slavery and Jim Crow and Jane Crow, but fascism taking over the whole nation, taking over the whole empire that affects everybody on vanilla sides as well as chocolate sides. That would have been new. And a lot of people have been debating about this in terms of, well, we've got fascism in America from the very beginning. Fascist zones, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. You can't talk about history of black people without talking about fascist zones in the imperial democracy, in the white supremacist democracy, but democratic practices and rights and liberties, even when they apply to a small group, are still precious. It's just that at that particular moment in history, it's predicated on the domination of others. 
is predicated on the subjugation of others. But the rights and the liberties themselves, we want that for everybody. And the same would be true in terms of a certain kind of, a certain level of prosperity. We want everybody to eat. We want everybody to have food. We want everybody to have a decent house. Everybody to have quality education. Everybody to be able to raise their voices without thinking that the police is going to snatch them off the street and so forth and so on, you see. So this is where the Bill of Rights becomes very important, even though early on it was applied only to a small group. And we have to say that over and over again to make sure that we provide clarity, intellectual clarity, moral clarity in what we're willing to live and die for. We have to be very honest about that. And this is where the arts come in, though, brother, that we're at a moment now where people will more and more look to artists providing a certain kind of wind at the back of those who are trying to provide alternatives to the neoliberal uh, status quo, which seems to be now coming back in place if Biden, in fact, uh, ends up winning. We're talking at a time where it's still up in the air, but it looks like it's moving in that direction. But uh, it's still very grim, even if he does win, because so much of the same structures of domination, the same blindnesses, the same refusals to engage poverty, take seriously what the working class in all of its various expressions and colorations are going through, and to what's going on around the world. AFRICOM and Africa is expanding. That's going to expand under Biden. We're going to get United States supporting occupation in West Bank and Gaza and so forth. So with Biden and Netanyahu, will still have a very strong alliance. may not be as cozy as with Trump, but it will still be an alliance. We have to, we have to take a stand in that regard. We have to be honest about the, you know, the plight of Jews in, in, in Russia and in France and in Pittsburgh in terms of escalating hatred of Jews. And so we've got to be able to have a, uh, a solidarity again, a politics of genuine solidarity. That's, that's rooted in vision and analysis uh, of radical democratic possibility. And that's what I love about Sister Wendy's, uh, Wendy's, Wendy's work. She and Judith, I mean, they've got to be two of the, uh, the greatest uh, intellectuals in one household that we have in the country. And I'll tell you that right now. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. Speaking of intelligentsia, you've had quite an experience over the years with liberal democratic intelligentsia in general and black intelligentsia in particular over the past decade. What have you learned from that whole experience that might help us better understand the nature of, of the liberal establishment and the position of the left and the black left in particular? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's an inconsistency. There's an inconstancy, you know. There's a hypocrisy that you get among uh, too many liberal intellectuals, uh, that they get deeply concerned when their close friends are being treated unfairly or their voices are being suffocated. And they're right. Their friends are not to be treated unfairly. I think nobody ought to be treated unfairly. But when folk outside of their stable are treated unfairly, they don't say a mumbling word. Don't say a mumbling word. You see what I mean? So that, uh, you know, Mark Lamont Hill has threats to take his tenure away because of his 
critique of a vicious Israeli occupation and his solidarity, as he understands it, with, with Palestinians. Where are the libertarians? You know, where are they? I mean, my dear brother, Ravi George, who I traveled the country with, you know, conservative brother, he was willing to take a stand. He said, look, Brother West, I'll go with you to march to support Mark Lamont Hill. And he's got a you know very, very different view from Israel than me and Mark do. And me and Mark don't agree on everything, but we've got deep solidarity with Palestinians. But at least he's a serious conservative with integrity enough to say we're going to defend his rights. We're going to defend his liberty to raise his voice. He was stronger than most of the liberal intellectuals when it came to Mark Lamont Hill. And that's true for the black liberal intellectuals, too. You know, they didn't raise their voice. Oh, no, no, they don't want to be tarred with being anti-Semitic. Oh, God. No way. Next thing you know, they'll be in the Hitler's camp. You know, he's, he said, hey, how did I end up here? I, I, I was just trying to defend liberty. Now they got me anti-Semitic. Now they got me supporting Hitler. This is some sick stuff. You got to be clear, constant of what you are saying why you are doing it, and the stances that you take. Now, you still can be misunderstood, but you have to be clear and consistent in that sense. And liberal intellectuals are not known for their moral consistency or their moral courage. In, in both 2016 and 2020, in the Democratic primaries, we saw much of the Black establishment and many, many Black voters, too, line up behind Clinton and then Biden. And I think this is a discussion that's often either avoided or oversimplified, but I don't hear many very interesting engagements with the question, which is, why haven't Bernie's left social democratic challenges broken through with so many black voters? Obviously, many young black voters supported Bernie, but not enough. And not enough old and not very many older black voters. Is it about something about the reality of the state of black politics or failures of the left or both? Well, I think we all have to look to ourselves, take some responsibility. But I think in the end, and this is a question that Sister Nina Turner and Brother Danny Glover and I, I mean, we did, you know, hundreds and hundreds of events for Brother Bernie, a lot of them in black communities and still unable to get the breakthrough. Uh, so you get this paradox, you get the most progressive candidate running for president of a major party in the history of the empire, and the most progressive voting bloc refuses to vote for him, and if they had, he could very well be president. So, you know, that's a serious, serious issue. You know, here we turn to our brothers and sisters in the Black Agenda report, Glenn Ford and Margaret Kimberly and uh, Nellie Bailey and Brother Danny and so many others, or the Black Alliance for Peace, Brother Jumu Baraka and company. You know, they, they've been telling us for a long time that there is a neoliberal hegemony of Black leadership that is so highly influential that keeps Black people to a certain degree pacified and keeps them sleepwalking when it comes to issues of Wall Street, when it comes to issues of Pentagon militarism, when it comes to issues of AFRICOM, when it comes to issues of 800 military units around the world. And that black neoliberal hegemony in the black community 
it cuts very deep. It really does, because black people are convinced that, like most Americans, there's no alternative to neoliberal leadership other than the Republican Party. And so they remain captured and locked in over and over and over again. And those who are cast as somehow willing to break out of the neoliberal mode are the right wingers. You know, and they get a whole lot of, you know, visibility. Kanye West and Sister Candace and all the folks say, look, we're tired of the neoliberal Democratic Party plantation. We want to go to the neo-fascist plantation that could lead toward internment camps. You see, so you say, dang, what a choice between a rock and a hard place. You remember Highland Garnett right there in our dearly beloved city of Philadelphia? He gave a speech in 1841. He said, black people never confuse your situation for that of the Israelites of the Old Testament. For us, Pharaoh is on both sides of the bloody Red Seas. And the choice is between which Pharaoh. And for so long, black people have had the Pharaoh of the Republicans, the Pharaoh of the Democrats. The Democrat Pharaoh is better, small P. Pharaoh of the Republicans, a little bigger P. Then here come Trump, the fascist P. Because Reagan was reactionary, but he wasn't a fascist the way Trump and we had to be clear about that. So that you say, mm, how do you break that, brother? That's that's that. Now, the good news is that the younger generation is, is deeply concerned about breaking the back of the duopoly. And we'll see what kind of openness they have to the People's Party. We'll see what kind of openness they have for any alternative pre-party formations as well. Well, that's a my next question is then how do you see Black Lives Matter in this whole massive explosion in black political radicalism right now impacting the black politics status quo and all of its various regional, generational, religious class divides? Well, I think Black Lives Matter, again, it's a stage in the black freedom movement. The black freedom movement has always been confronted with uh, uh, the fundamental challenge of one, being co-opted by the status quo with big money and big status and big position. And of course, Black Lives Matter has been just got big money coming at it from NGOs and various other uh, uh, liberal elites, neoliberal elites, some progressive elites. They wouldn't be neoliberal, but still have money. And the other challenge is that when they're not co-opted, they provide some kind of alternative. But the question is, how long will that alternative be able to sustain itself? Oftentimes, it becomes a target of vicious repression of the neo-fascist policies of the liberal state. That's what COINTELPRO was. That's what the FBI surveillance was. See? Because for the genuine love warriors and the genuine freedom fighters who constitute a threat to the whole system, America has a long history of just killing, assassinating, murdering, trashing creating mayhem for them, lying on them. We can go on and on from Fred Hampton's. He tried to do it with Angela Martin. We can go, we can go on and on in that regard. So that it's going to be, you know, Black Lives Matter. It's going to be a fork at, reach its own fork in the road and see which way it goes. Now, if in fact we can somehow have a stronger wing of the Black Freedom Movement, the Black Lives Matter, that's not co-opted, and then has solidarity with other serious left groups, 
then we got a chance to bring some serious power and pressure to bear. And that's where the uh, threat actually is, because in the end, the fundamental threat to the status quo is a genuine political solidarity rooted in an integrity that calls for the fundamental transfer of power and resources from the ruling classes to the everyday people. And uh, you always hope and pray it's not a violent thing, but the violence is always already a part of it because it's institutionalized before you even start the dialogue with the police and others committing various kinds of uh, uh, violations uh, uh, too often. But the uh, but that's that's the question of the great, um, you know, Sheldon Wohl in his great book on fugitive democracy. He was very pessimistic about doing this kind of thing. Ernesto Cortez, who says, well, I got to stay local. I got to stay uh, the civic uh, organizing and the public organizing and the political organizing has to be rooted in neighborhoods because there's too much money and power at the national level in the empire. That's the uh, Industrial Areas Foundation. Jeffrey Stout has written the great classic on this. Blessed are the organized. That ought to be much more well read in terms of the centrality of organizing for alternatives. You see, the people, young people who are concerned about organizing, that's the book to read. And he's, he, he's, 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 he's there with the IAF. He's there with those folk who are on the ground. And Black Lives Matter, magnificent organizers. He got the spirit of Ella Baker. And that's a very different kind of spirit, you know, than the spirit of, of Martin King, who is magnificent. We love him and gives these great speeches and things. But he's in and out of town. Ella's on the ground, and she, she's transgenerational, and she got that spirit. You got that. You can't organize without having the, the right kind of spirit. You got to get your soul intact to get fortified. This ain't no three-day demonstration. This is a year. This is a life commitment. And yet, I think we do have a chance because, in the end. You know what? Uh, it, it's going to be a question, as Chomsky says, on, on the global level, it's internationalism or extinction. We don't have solidarity around the world. Then the elites at the top would grieve, would blow up the whole planet, given the ecological catastrophe. And, and nationally, it's going to be solidarity or self-destruction. There will be a, a lot of pressure for the left, especially referring to community-based nonprofit organizations, the political wings of, of organized labor to help prop up an ailing and weak Biden administration. How should we on the left position ourselves in, in this context of a, a likely day one lame duck hobbled by a Republican Senate? My, my gut sense is that we need a strategy, but that also a big part of the left's job is going to be responding to crises and moments of mass uprising that we can't entirely anticipate, but given recent history, seem likely to occur? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, I think that uh, we have to have a very subtle uh, dance between the inside and outside. We've got to get concessions because people are, are starving. People are unemployed. People want to gain access to health care, educate their precious kids. So we've got to get concessions from the rotten neoliberal rule. 
because it, it, it was everyday people who pushed him over. It's everyday people who stopped the march to fashion. The Biden didn't stop. It was the everyday people who pushed him over, disproportionately working people and black and brown and progressive middle class. Those are the ones who pushed Biden over. Uh, and then, of course, black women and the black men playing an important role disproportionately. Uh, but see, that's the inside one. You can't. But if we if if we bank on the inside, we're headed toward even deeper uh, d- disappointment. The outside one is not just protests, hitting the streets and going to jail, but it's the creation of or the revitalization of left institutions, from political parties, the pre pre party formations, the civic organizations, to music groups. To, to athletes and entertainers and not just have symbolic protests, but provide resources and their own presence for left institutions and structures. And that's not on the inside. That's on the outside. And to make sure that they don't get co-opted, that they don't get diluted and seduced into the glitz and blitz of the establishment, of the status quo, as it were. And, and, and there, I think we have to make it a major, a major priority, don't we? We really do. We really do, because we can't, I mean, this could be just, you know, this is the last stand of the neoliberal elites, as it were. And if we can't seize this moment to provide a strong, credible option and alternative to our fellow citizens, let alone the world, Extinction at the international level, self-destruction at the domestic level, and we all go under. And that's that's what it is to live at this particular historical moment. It's an unprecedented moment. It's a moment of unbelievable suffering and misery and despair, disappointment. But it can also be a moment of tremendous breakthrough and joy and resilience and resistance and in the end the kind of fundamental change required in order for uh, all of us here and abroad to live lives of decency and dignity. That does prompt one follow-up. I, I think we often take it for granted that people know what we're talking about when we talk about organizing. But, but what is it to organize, to be organized, to be an organizer, to build real left organizations? Because doing organizing, what I find is actually our society, the system we live under, disorganizes us. And it's by no by no means do people necessarily know what you're talking about when you're initially trying to organize them and, tr- and organize them into becoming organizers. Or just being, I mean, I gave my own experience with prisons where, uh, I mean, there's a wild the moment where I was banned because I, I was too radical. And so I would go in on Sunday mornings and the, the brothers themselves would organize in such a way that our teaching uh, could still go on under the aegis of church services so that there's a tremendous capacity of ordinary people to engage in their own forms of organizing if they are so moved, if they're so motivated if they see that there are real possibilities that they themselves had not even imagined because they hadn't come together with themselves 
And so that's a very small, small, you know, uh, narrow example, but an important one because the self-organization of everyday people uh, uh, is something that is yet to be fundamentally tested. It's yet to be fundamentally tested. This is why the arts are so very important. See, James Brown's band was self-organization of oppressed, hated, black, poor, and working class people that generated levels of beauty that the whole world had to recognize. That's true for the temptations. It's true for the emotions. It's true for Curtis Mayfield's band. It's in the arts, you get people who have been spit on, who organize themselves, sustain themselves year after year with hardly no money and produce things that take us to places we know not of. And that's just one small little example of a foretaste of the tremendous genius and talent of those Sly Stone called everyday people and those James Cleveland called ordinary people. That's what democracy is all about. That's a threat. That's why they try to co-opt the music, co-opt the, the entertainers, co-opt the, the artists. And, and yet, what are they doing? Bring folks together in a lot of different ways, man. Jewish brother in Minnesota, here's the blues. I'm going to change my name. I'm not Robert Zimmerman no more. I'm Bob Dylan, god dang it. And you see what I got to say, my song and my voice over against the black blues folk from Mississippi and New York and Chicago and so forth, going to be part of that cacophony. And that's part of the crucial artistic and cultural expression of everyday people that goes hand in hand with the larger collective expression of everyday people. And in that sense, you know, I think there's that's one of the real incubator moments of incubation and, of, and possibility of the unleashing of radical democratic sensibilities, raising their voices. Because when ordinary people raise their voices, brother, they're not going to choose poverty. They're not going to choose getting mistreated at, at the workplace by the bosses. The women are not going to choose being manipulated by the men. The gay brothers, the gay brother, lesbian sisters, they're not going to choose being dishonored by the straights. The trans going to walk around with their back straight, with smiles on their faces, with their own style. And we ain't even got to the global thing yet. They ain't going to be putting up with no neo-colonial rules, no neo-colonial regimes. Mm-mm. Unleash that possibility. Well, Cornell West, thank you very much. Thank you, though, brother. It's been a joy talking to you, brother. Cornell West is a professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard University. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after perhaps oversimplifying the way that under capitalism, society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Theo Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. 
Rating and reviewing us helps introduce us to new listeners, ostensibly, but what really does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Thank you.